Welcome to this teaching from the Refuge Church online experience. We're happy you're listening. As a reminder, at the end of all of our teachings, you'll have an opportunity to participate in the biblical practice of communion. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, consider gathering the elements, such as a piece of bread or a cracker, and your beverage of choice. And take a couple of minutes at the end to remember and participate in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We also encourage you to do it with at least one other person, if possible. Thank you. My goal is, every time I prepare a message, if Jesus doesn't have to die and be buried and resurrected for my message to make sense, then I figure it's not worth preaching that message. Life isn't in the moral application of these stories. Life is in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The whole thing here hangs on one truth. Was Jesus God, and did he die and come out of that tomb? That's it. Nothing else matters. So we don't look at these Old Testament stories to find principles about character and how we ought to live. Any religion can offer you that. The moral of the story of Abraham and Isaac is not obedience. It's not faith. It's the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the hero of the story. And so often we go into the Bible and we find the hero. This is our human pride. We read the story. Who's the hero in the story? and I put myself in the hero's shoes. You are not the hero of human history. You're not even the hero of your own life. Jesus is the hero. When you're reading the Bible and you're looking at the characters and trying to figure out who's me and who's Jesus, you are one of two characters. You are either the weak, feeble, scared victim being rescued by the hero, or let's be honest, you're the enemy. (laughs) Jesus said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were enemies. That's how, why he can tell us uh, to love our enemies, because guess what? We were his enemies and he loved us. And and so uh, when we look at the Old Testament, Jesus is the hero. Actually, that's a, we have four core values in this church, and one of them is Jesus is the hero. So whatever, whatever we're talking about, Jesus is the solution. You're not the solution, not your better choices, better work, better effort. Jesus is the solution. He's the hero. So I want to look at the life of Abraham. It just hit me. We were singing that song, God of Abraham, you're the God of... I'm like, oh my goodness, we're talking about Abraham today. So... Um, Let's read this story that you probably are familiar with. This might be like, it's definitely top five most famous Bible stories. Uh, So you you might be familiar with it, um, uh, and you might not be. It's okay if you're not, because we're going to read it. And um, and this one I actually think is probably the easiest to find Jesus in, because we have like an only begotten son in this story. That's kind of like, yeah. For God so loved the world. So let's read this. Genesis 22. I can't remember when I'm stopping. Somewhere. I'll stop when I'm supposed to stop. 
you can give me the break sound when I'm supposed to talk. Uh, eight, is that what you said? Okay. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son. I love how God just like rubs it in. You son, you know, your only son, Isaac. Ouch, God. Whom you love. Oh, he just keeps rubbing it in. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Isn't that interesting? He said, I and the boy will worship, and I and the boy will come to you. That's interesting that he said that. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. This is like Scripture says that God took uh, the iniquity of us all and laid it upon him. So he, he lays it upon his son, Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, uh, his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire, check, the wood, check, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. <clears throat> Whew. So, Abraham. Who is Abraham? When we first meet Abraham in the Bible, he's just a guy. Just a guy. Nothing special about Abraham. The thing that makes Abraham special is that God made Abraham special. He was just a guy that God decided he was going to choose. And, and so God came to, to, to Abraham and, and made covenant with him, made a promise to him. He said, basically, Abraham, if you trust me, this is what I'll do with your life. But he was just a guy. I think as Christians, it's important to remember we're not special, or we're not, we're not chosen because we're special. We're special because God chose us. We were nothing. Abraham was just a guy. And God came and chose him. And he made this promise to him about making a great nation out of him. Abraham's uh, married to this wonderful woman, Sarah, and they're in love. He's a great husband. Uh, I mean, there's a few bumps in the road, but we don't need to go down those, those, those uh, rabbit trails. But he loved his wife. Um, there was one problem, though. Abraham and Sarah, they're, they're getting very old, and they have no children. And now, today, it's sad if somebody wants children and they can't have children. But in this day and age... You don't have a 401k. You don't have insurance. You don't have Burger King. You know how an old man plows his field? He has children. 
You know how an old man makes it through old age? He has children. Uh, that was the plan. This, is, this isn't just, a, oh, it'd be really nice to have kids. This is your, this is your life. So when we, see, when we see that God does a miracle and provides Abraham a son, I want you to think about, think of it this way. God gave Abraham life. This is life. Um, Abraham was dead if God didn't intervene and give him this son. God gave us life. And this is the beginning of the gospel. God made you. He, gave, he put the breath in your lungs. And why did he do that? Why did God choose Abraham? Did Abraham do something to be chosen? No, God chose Abraham because God loves Abraham. Not because of Abraham, but because of God. So if you have received the gift of life from God, you can know God loves you. Just as Abraham, once he received Isaac, he could look in the morning, he wakes up and he sees that little baby boy and he says, God loves me. Look at this. Look at what he did for me. You and I can wake up every morning, take a deep breath and say, God loves me. Look at what he's done for me. He put breath in my lungs. I woke up again today. What a gift from God. He made us for relationship. He, he chose to put his love on us just because that's who he is. <clears throat> so the purpose of your life, we have so many, I mean, the, I think it's like the number two or three all-time selling, best-selling book is the purpose-driven life, and we strive and we search for purpose. And it's very, very simple. God made you for relationship. God made you for relationship, and um, you were made on purpose and for that purpose, not an accident. God didn't accidentally choose Abraham. He didn't accidentally choose you. He knit you in your mother's womb. He made you on purpose. I like to think of it this way. God had a purpose, and then he fashioned you around it. He designed you for a purpose that existed before you. He didn't make you, and they say, oh, I guess we better figure something for Laurel to do. I mean, now that she's here, we better figure something out. He said, there's something missing. I've got to have a wild, wacky, joyful Laurel in my life. And so he fashioned us around the purpose that he already had. And that purpose was relationship. You're not made to produce something. You're just made to love and be loved. I love that he calls his church the beloved. And uh, I like to say that our job description is in our title. That our job is just to be loved. We were made to be loved. But now the story, here, I mean, you can imagine this old man and his wife. In fact, when Sarah heard the promise of God, she laughed because it was that ridiculous that this old woman would have a baby. But God did it. And so can you imagine this couple, the joy for, I don't know, maybe 15, 16 years. We know Isaac was about, a, he was a teenager at least when this story we just read happened. So, so we have a man 
well over 100 years old and a teenage boy here. Um, so think of it that way. I think a lot of times we see this little boy. That's not how it worked. Abraham was probably looking up to Isaac when he, when he was uh, walking up the mountain with him. But for 15, 16 years, the joy that Abraham and Sarah had in the gift of God that was Isaac. And then our story takes this dark turn. God comes to him and he says, hey, hey, Abraham, you know your son, your only son, the son that you love? Yeah, I'm going to need you to offer him as a sacrifice. And uh, I, this story makes me uncomfortable. And here's how you know that you're actually serving God and not uh, uh, an idol made in your own image is when God does and says things that you don't like. If everything you read in this Bible makes you feel comfortable and everything God ever tells you is like so comfortable and, and like positive and happy and, and it just fits into exactly what you would think, maybe God's not the one you're hearing. Maybe you are just thinking. Like God challenges our worldview. God challenges our paradigm. And so we say, no, a loving God wouldn't come to you and take the gift back that he gave. Why would he do that? He did. He said, offer your son as a sacrifice. And I think it's important if we're going to understand why, why God would say this, we have to understand what a sacrifice is. Where did sacrifice come from? And this is so, this is so beautiful. Some people have this perspective that grace appears in, with Jesus in the New Testament. Grace is all the way through the story. If you, if you read the Bible with gospel lenses, you can see grace all the way through. Do you know who offered the first sacrifice? God did. God offered the first sacrifice. It was, sacrifice was in response to sin. Adam and Eve sin in the garden. Their eyes are opened. Oh my goodness, we're naked. And do you remember what God's response was? He slaughtered an animal and covered their sin. That's, that is literally exactly what a sacrifice is. And so from that moment on, this was the first time they saw, you want to talk about the wages of sin is death. Adam and Eve stood there in their sin, and God's, God is acting on their behalf, and they are sitting there th saying, because we sinned, this is happening. Nothing had died. No one had ever shed blood before. We're talking about, you know, think of a, the purest, most innocent child you can imagine. That's Adam and Eve, times 10. And now they're seeing this animal being slaughtered because of their sin. And God says, from here on out, I want you to regularly offer sacrifices because I want you to remember, this is what your sin costs you. The wages of sin is death. And so God institutes in the garden, God offers the first sacrifice on behalf of Adam and Eve to cover their sin for them. And from that moment on, sacrifice was a response to sin, to cover sin. 
And so when God comes to Abraham and he says, I need you to offer a sacrifice. I need you to offer the most costly sacrifice you can imagine. You know what the most profound thing in this story is to me? Maybe even more profound than the fact that God asks it. Because if I'm honest, we're not seeing ourselves correctly and we're not seeing God correctly if we're offended by the fact that God would ask Abraham for a sacrifice. I, the the uh, founder of the Bible college I went to, uh, Dick Iverson, famous story. Uh, a woman came up to him after church one time and she said, Brother Dick, there's a story in the Bible that I don't like. And he says, okay, what's that? Well, there's a scripture that says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And if you know the story, both boys hadn't even been born yet. And God is saying over these twin boys, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And she says, what did Esau do? I hate this verse. Why does God hate Esau? And Brother Dick says, yeah, I have a problem with this verse too. Why in the world does God love Jacob? We look at it and we say, why in the world would God hate Esau? But a humble, broken human who realizes who they are, reads it and says, why on earth does God choose to love us? And so when we look at this story and we see God come to Abraham and we hear him ask for Isaac, you and I, we could get, oh my goodness, why would God do that? Humble yourself. Why wouldn't he? And you'll notice this is the most profound thing in the story. Abraham has no argument with God. This is Abraham. Father Abraham, we sang that weird song in Sunday school that I really don't understand what, I never understood what the point was. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. And I don't know what the poor little girls did the whole time. I am one of them. No, you're not. Talk about confusion. No, you're not one of his sons. And I didn't know, I mean, I knew, I knew this must mean I'm a Christian, but I don't know why that being a son of Abraham, I don't know what that means. And it's kind of, if you think about it, it kind of sounds like Mormonism. Like he's got all these kids, so he must be a very spiritual per person. I don't know what, I don't know what's going on. We're singing Father Abraham. So if you're a Jew, Abraham is a pillar of your faith. You know Father Abraham. He is the father of that faith. If you're a Christian, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. We are. You can read in Scripture how we are that seed from the promise of Abraham. We look to Abraham as a cornerstone of our faith. If you're a Muslim, you know who Abraham is. I don't know, honestly, other than Jesus Christ, is there a more prominent figure in faith than Abraham? He literally is, that's what he's known for. He's the father of faith. And God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, you owe me a sacrifice. And Abraham has no argument. So, 
if God comes to you, God comes to me and says, Nathan, you owe me a sacrifice. I have to tell you, if Father Abraham has no argument, I have no argument. I have no case. If Abraham said, this is fair, this is just, I have to say, God, I owe you my life. Abraham said, God, I owe you my life, my son. I have to come before a holy God and say, it's fair. If he came to me today and said, Nathan, you owe me your life. You're right. I do. Abraham had no argument, so I don't. And uh, I think it's powerful that God doesn't ask for just any sacrifice here. He asks for the most expensive offering Abraham could ever imagine. And let me tell you, and I know there are people in this room, I could just turn over the microphone and you could tell stories of how Sin is pleasurable for a moment, but it will always steal from you the things you love the most. Always. Every time. The lie of sin is that I'm different. This is different. I can engage in this and not pay the same penalty everyone else does. You will pay. Every time, sin will steal from you the things you love the most. Oftentimes, actually, here's what I find. The very thing I'm trying to use sin to acquire is the thing that will be stolen from me. Man, I just want peace of mind. And so I give myself, I just want rest. I want peace. So I give myself over to alcohol. Let me tell you, a life of addiction is not a life of peace. I just, there's this void in my life. I need relationship. I need love. I need intimacy. And so you give yourself to every man who comes along. Guess what? The very, that is the very thing you will lose. Your heart will become hard and broken and, and you feel trapped in a cell where you're incapable of love. The very thing you're using sin to go after You'll feel a, a counterfeit version in the beginning. But over time, sin comes knocking and says, hey, this is going to cost you your Isaac every time. And if all of Abraham's faith, all of his obedience, all of his good works, didn't allow him to escape the altar, neither will you.
So God gives the word. Abraham has no argument, and he begins to prepare. We must take a step back. When you read these stories a thousand times, you know the end. He doesn't know the end. This is a man who's waited a hundred years for a son. And he gets up in the morning, packs his food, packs some, some wood for the fire, puts his knife on his hip. I imagine the whole walk is very awkward. Isaac's walking and his dad is just randomly crying. And he's peeking over like something's going on, right? Probably not a lot of conversation going on. Maybe, you know, Isaac might, might bring something fun up, you know, like, hey, did you, you watch the, the game last night? Oh, my goodness, what an amazing ending to the game. And his dad says, yeah, it was incredible. And he starts crying, and he's like, oh, what did I say? You know, like, this had to be the most awkward trip ever. And at some point, we know that Isaac's putting two and two together here. He's like, wait a minute, okay, we, we got wood. We got the knife. We got the fire. Dad? And I imagine this one is very emotional as Abraham tells him, God will provide. So, if you know the story, it doesn't end as bad as it looks like it's going to end. At just the last moment, the angel stops him. And you have to say, this man is 115 years old. I don't know about you, but if I knew someone at 115, I'm not throwing him a surprise party because I'm afraid it's going to kill him. <laughs> and God takes a 115-year-old man and drags him through this torture just to stop it at the last minute. And if I'm Abraham, after hugging and kissing and loving my son, I'm saying, okay, God, what the heck? What was this about? I think there was one very powerful message that God wanted to declare, not just to Abraham, but to generations to come for thousands of years. Here's what God is declaring. I am different. I am holy. We, we see his holiness in the fact that Abraham had no argument. Before a holy God, he, he owed a sacrifice. And now God is saying, not, I'm holy in, not just am I holy in that I am pure and perfect. I am holy in that I am different from any other God. You may not know this, but where Abraham and Sarah lived, they were surrounded by people who worshipped false gods. And it was regular practice for the people around them to offer their children as sacrifices to their God. And I imagine before this conversation with God, before this trip, Abraham and Sarah, maybe there was a little bit of pride even, like, our God is better. Our God is different. We don't do these empty 
rituals, and, and he doesn't ask us to do these wicked things. We serve a loving God. We serve the only God. Like, they're, they're so, um, so um, in awe of who their God is and confident in who he is. And then God comes and says this, and I imagine maybe especially Sarah, because she's not the one God directly spoke to, to say, he's just like every other God. Here we thought we had a different God. Here we thought we had a loving God. I actually think God brings Abraham to the brink here because he wants everyone around them to see, I'm different. This is what your God brings you through. This is the torment and torture that is required for you to have a relationship with your God. I am different. I never ask for a, a sacrifice like that. I am, a, I am a gracious and loving God. I think he did this with Abraham, not just for Abraham, but for those around so that God could distinguish himself from other gods. I love what Reinhard Bonnke used to say. He said, in all the other religions, it's about, God, uh, it's about man spreading a feast before their God. But the gospel is God preparing a feast for his people. And so when Abraham says to Isaac, God will provide. That's the point of this story. It's God saying, Abraham, look at what the other gods make men do. And then now look at what I do. And they find this ram in the thicket. His thorns tangled around his head. We could see the imagery, right, of Jesus with the crown of thorns. And now we have the ram in the thicket. Isaac is tied up on the altar. He saw his dad, tears streaming down his face with the knife. And the angel came and stopped. And then they see the substitute. They see this lamb who takes Isaac's place. I have to believe that God or that Abraham approached Isaac differently for the rest of his life. Something happens to us. When you can have that revelation of the ugliness of your sin, the wickedness that your life has produced. And then you can see the perfect lamb step up on a cross that was designed for you. And you see that bloodshed. I, I don't know how you walk away from that unchanged. And maybe we shouldn't walk away from it. Abraham had this amazing revelation that God would provide. But it was an incomplete revelation. Abraham saw that God would provide the sacrifice, but he could never imagine that God would be the sacrifice. 
David had this beautiful revelation. You prepare before me, a, a, a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Amazing picture, but an incomplete one. He had no idea that God would be the table. God blessed Abraham with a substitute. But the moral of the story is this, Jesus is a better substitute. Because do you know what? That was not the last time Abraham made that journey. For the rest of his life, he would be making that same journey, not with his son, not to offer his son, but he would be offering sacrifices the rest of his life. But in the blood of Jesus, we have a once and for all, it is finished for all eternity sacrifice. We never have to make that journey up the mountain again. Abraham's ram got him out of that one situation. But he would have to sacrifice again, over and over and over again for the rest of his life. My sin has been dealt with. I never have to look over my shoulder. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means the penalty for my sin has been dealt with. My sin does not separate me from God anymore. Before the sacrifice of Jesus, sin was this mountain between me and God. And now, he has satisfied the penalty of sin once and for all. It, all of your sins were in the future when Jesus died. All of them. I used to think this, that when I, when I accepted Jesus, when I came and I prayed that prayer, I, I was five years old, uh, watching Gospel Bill, and I prayed with Gospel Bill to accept Jesus. I had this picture in my mind that, okay, I have this debt of sin, and in that moment, I'm going to Jesus, and I'm asking for forgiveness, and now all of that that I have done in my past is taken care of. All right, now just try not to screw it up in the future. But every single one of my sins were all in the future when Jesus died. He paid the penalty for the sins I am going to commit today, road rage, on the way to Coeur d'Alene. The sins I'm going to commit tomorrow, the sins I'm going to commit a year from now, they were all in the future when he died. They're all dealt with. And so I'm not looking over my shoulder. There's not this evil monster called sin chasing me down anymore. My debt has been paid. I'm free. But here's the lesson of the story. Every one of us will stand before that altar. Abraham's altar is a place that every human must stand before. 
and there will be blood on that altar. Non-negotiable, there will be blood on that altar. The question is, whose blood is going to be on the altar? When you stand before God, who is going to pay for your sin? That's the question. It's as simple as this. I don't know if this is how it works. I don't think it is, but maybe it is. That you come before God and he says, why should I let you in? What on earth is your answer? For me, I'm going to point to that altar and say, it should have been me. But there was a substitute. There's no reason it shouldn't be my blood on that altar. But I want to remind you, you offered a substitute. Your son stood in my place. My penalty is paid. So I'm not standing before you in my own righteousness. I'm, I don't have a list of all the good things I did with my life. And I hope uh, we, we watched for a while, we watched that uh, sitcom, The Good Place. And the way they, it was so funny to see how the world thinks heaven works. There's this tally and it's like your good works go in this column and your bad works go in this column. And as long as this side outweighs that side, you get to go to the good place. And I think there's going to be millions upon millions of people who stand before God with their tally. And they're saying, it's my blood, my sweat, my tears that justify me. That's why I should be in. And it's not going to cut it. Because of your sin, there must be blood on that altar. So, how do we have relationship with God? How do we come into his kingdom? I'm not talking about when I die, how do I get into heaven? Right now I'm saying, how do you enter into the kingdom, into the family of God? One simple word, trust. Not work, not strive, not try, trust. The arrogance, I know it feels like humility, but the arrogance to reject the substitutionary work of Christ and think that you could offer a better sacrifice is absolutely stupid. Accept the free gift of the blood of Jesus. Let him wash you. Let him cleanse you. I love, see, this is again why he's a better substitute. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, God kills the animal to cover their sin, right? And, and from that point on, the Israelites, God's people, would offer sacrifices that would cover their sin for a period. And then they would have to come back and they would have to offer it again to cover their sin again. Do you know the blood of Jesus does not cover your sins? 
The blood of Jesus washes you clean of sin. When you accept the free gift of Jesus, it is as if you had never sinned. He literally forgets your sin. The all-knowing God forgets your sin. He doesn't look at you as someone who has been forgiven. He looks at you and sees the righteousness of his son. Your life looks like the life of Jesus to him. Because you're in Christ. Because of that sacrifice. As far as the east is from the west. You keep going east and tell me when you hit west. Your sin is completely separated from you. There is no sin attached to you any longer when you are in Christ. None. You are free from the penalty of sin. So when you stand before him, how about today? Before you leave today, make the decision that on the altar of my life, the, the theme of my life, the driving force of my life will not be my own effort to try to fix my life. My life will be about one thing. The foundation of my life, the confidence I stand in will be in one thing and one thing alone. The blood of Jesus shed for me. So whose sacrifice are you going to trust in? Yours? Some of you are so riddled with guilt, you feel like you need to make up for what you've done. It feels like humility. I'm telling you it's arrogance. You cannot fix what you've done. There's a lot of things I like about AA. I don't completely, not everything, but there's one thing I really like. The first thing you got to do is admit that you are powerless. You cannot fix this. If you could, how horrible of a father is God? If there was any other way to fix sin other than the sacrifice of Jesus, that means God is a wicked father to put his son through that. So whose sacrifice are you going to trust in today? 